<clears throat> Thanks, Bob. And thank you all, and good morning for coming. Just uh, one second while I open my computer here. So perhaps uh, much to Bob's chagrin, um, the, uh, <clears throat> the remarks today are not going to focus too terribly much on the materials that you have. Um, probably, well, perhaps not to Bob's chagrin, actually. He's probably pretty happy about that. But uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here um, talking to you. Thanks to the Crow um, Foundation. It's, it's an honor to meet the actual Trammell Crow or, or one of them. Um, we had some lease issues that uh, we needed to discuss. So it was <laughs> perfect, perfect timing. Um, it's just a little bit of a disclaimer here because I'm, I'm going to be a little bit off slide. Okay, a lot off slide. Um, these are clearly my remarks and not those of DLA Piper. Okay, and the impressions are my impressions and not necessarily opinions of the firm. Uh, from a, a additional housekeeping standpoint, Bob did point out that the uh, the doing business in China uh, materials are there for you to take with you. Um, I also have um, a plug for a book that uh, I am the uh, managing editor of and, and one of the co-authors, which is our, our Mergers and Acquisitions Handbook, which we are also in the process of repositioning for China. Uh, because I came over, um, you know, with the, the new baggage limitations and whatnot, I didn't bring books for everybody. But if you want to shoot me an email, I'll happily uh, post one to you. Um, so that is uh, kind of the, the housekeeping stuff. So who am I and, and, and why am I here to talk about China? Well, my name is Jeff Green, and I live in China, uh, and I often refer to myself as ABC. So most of you probably know that term to mean uh, American-born Chinese, but in my case, it means American-black Chinese. It's a term that I've coined for myself to, to make me feel better about, uh, you know, kidding. So in case you didn't notice, I, I'm a bit irreverent, and, and if, we, uh, if we stray too far away, you know, you have my disclaimer already. No, no apologies, just a disclaimer. Um, so while today's discussion is, a, is titled Legal Aspects of Business in China, that, that's somewhat of a misnomer to the talk that, uh, that I want to give, um, because to me it's impossible to talk about the law without talking about the policy implications or the ostensible objectives behind those policies. Um, and I say ostensible objectives because government policies tend, at least in my opinion, to have as many unintended consequences as intended consequences. Um, so with your indulgence, I'd like to share some impressions on certain aspects of, of Chinese law and my impressions of those. Um, as Bob mentioned, my, my practice is primarily cross-border M&A, uh, corporate finance, uh, with an emphasis in biopharma, energy, uh, and, and related fields. Uh, that includes venture capital and private equity. So to start, I think it, it's fitting to, uh, particularly given the upheavals in the, the financial markets these days, to open with uh, the, the, the blessing slash curse that's oft quoted uh, or often attributed to a, an ancient Chinese philosopher, and that is the may you live in interesting times. And truly, these are interesting times, um, but interesting uh, to my mind, but not unforeseeable. <coughs> so taking you back, um, in fall of 2006, my wife, Teresa, and I took a, a leisurely stroll, and at the time, we uh, lived on Bainbridge Island in Seattle. And um, 
which is a bedroom community of Seattle just across the sound. But I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. But I had just come off a, a one-month stint uh, in our Beijing office working uh, to try and help my partners there close about 20 private equity and venture financing deals in anticipation of the 2006 M&A regs that were coming into effect. Um, and, and primarily, that those transactions were being driven because, uh, it, as is often the case in China, a law is released um, without implementing regs, uh, without any sort of background, and so there's a lot of uncertainty as to how those laws will actually impact um, transactions or business. And so, you know, what happens typically is if you don't want to uh, to trust what the interpretive releases are, are looking like. You try to get your deals done before the, the regs actually come into effect. And that's what was happening in September of 2006. Um, folks were uncertain as to whether this offshore transaction CENA structure that we had been using um, to help companies get offshore so that they could get foreign investment, we weren't sure if that was going to be um, made illegal or, or what was going to happen in that structure. So we wanted to get those deals done. Um, and on the surface, what the new m and regs seemed to accomplish was a number of policy objectives, among them uh, to rein in you know, perceived misuse of tax advantages by PR, PRC citizens um, and to put some structure around how Chinese companies would be acquired, particularly ones dealing with well-known brands or in strategic industries. Now, prior to that, I had done my, my first deal. This, my apologies. This computer is really... Uh, doing some things to me here. Um, I'd done my first deal in China in 2003, and it, it was a, a deal that took a year, literally, to get done. Um, and, you know, if you've done deals in China, uh, then you probably know that that's not necessarily out of the ordinary. But this deal, in particular, um, took five amended and restated share exchange agreements to get done. So we'd sign one, and then the parties would decide that they really didn't like what it said, and we'd negotiate it all over again. But we ultimately got the deal done. And at the time, my impressions of China and its legal framework were that it needed, needed a, or left a lot to be desired. And my, you know, after having gone to the wall and, and the Forbidden City and all of those other sorts of things, I thought, well, you know, I probably never need to come back to China again. But after going you know, back to Seattle, um, and you know, as is often the case in law firms, if you've done one type of deal, then you're the expert. So I had done a China deal, and I had a valid passport and a China visa. So anything related to China um, became my stuff, which actually worked out nicely because the more I went to China, the more I became enamored with the culture, with the people, and with um, just everything that was going on. There was sense, a sense of energy and vibrance <coughs> excuse me, that I, that I wasn't finding in Seattle. And, and indeed, every time I came back to Seattle, the town seemed to get smaller. Um, and you know, that's because there's all perhaps a million people in Seattle. And um, you know, in Shanghai, for example, there's 18 to 20 million in, in Shanghai proper. So it's, uh, it's definitely you know, a, a different world in China. So going back to the story, um, with my wife. You know, we walked hand in hand, ocean breezes, gulls, sailboats, tide pools, skyline, all that sort of stuff. And that's when I decided to, you know, whisper some not so sweet nothings in her ear, which went something like this. Um, we're doomed, we're all doomed, and oh by the way, I think we should move to China. <laughs> um, 
so <laughs> I, admittedly, I am a, a self-professed doomer. Last time I was here in uh, April um, talking, excuse me, I'm trying to scroll here. Um, a colleague and I had the opportunity to speak here in Dallas uh, before this, uh, this, uh, this body, and I used that trip um, as the basis for a talk that I subsequently gave uh, to an energy conference when I got back um, to Shanghai. And I'd like to excerpt a piece of that um, as the basis for today's conversation. So that talk went, went something like this. I'm just back from one of those brutal business trips that, take, that seems to take a lot, uh, or seems like a good idea, um, kind of like talking at seminars until the time rolls around to actually do it. Anyway, I had five to ten U.S. cities, or five cities in, in ten days, uh, Seattle, Atlanta, Austin, Dallas, and San Francisco, and then back to Shanghai. And I'm always fascinated about what people are saying and what's going on in the world. So whenever I get the chance, I try to talk to the man on the street. So in Seattle, I go to my local shoeshine guy, and I talk to the cab drivers. Because I think these are the people on the front lines, and these are the people who, who come to understand the impact of governmental policy long before the legislators um, who devise those policies have any idea what, what's going on with them. And as you might expect, this time around, there was a lot of candor. Uh, more candor than I was used to. And the general topic of conversation per, was perhaps um, summarized in the three E's. The election, um, the economy, and energy. On the election, people were eager to talk or to usher in a, a new administration. And I don't know what the politics of folks here are, but the people I talk to on the street seem happy that there's an election about to be held. Uh, on the economy, this is in April, uh, people sensed or believed that the U.S. was already in recession, and it was my opinion that uh, any self-respecting, honest economist would have said the same thing at that time. And on energy, well, at the time, gas was approaching $4 a gallon. Um, there's enough said there. So my remarks to the folks in, in Shanghai was that people in the U.S. had a lot to say. And by the same token, when I talked to people in China um, or in Shanghai, they also had a lot to say, and there was also a lot of candor there as well. But not necessarily about the U.S. election, um, but definitely about the economy, um, even in spite of the fact that uh, that quarter had grown 10.6 percent. Um, inflation was running rampant, and you got the sense that folks were starting to get cooked in their own ju juices. On energy, price controls and rationing have been implemented in, on gas and diesel. And as a, <clears throat> and as a corollary, a potentially devastating um, Asia-wide rice shortage was underway. Now, where I left off in that talk was, um, was talking about the notion of, of resource wars and peak oil and doom and gloom and all those other sorts of things. And, you know, as I am want to do in all of those conversations when folks ask me, you know, do you really think that that's going to happen, I say, you know, I'm a father of three kids. I sure as heck hope not. But if we're being realistic and we're looking at, at uh, things that are actually going on, then it seems unfathomable that, uh, you know, to believe that bad things can't happen. And the final piece of the excerpt from that, uh, from that talk that I wanted to share with you um, went something like this. Well, two pieces. Basically, I ask these questions. As it relates to China's energy, 
Um, how does one craft a comprehensive energy policy for a nation of more than 1.4 billion people or 1.3 billion people? How does one craft a comprehensive energy policy for a nation whose economy is expected to grow by more than 9% for the, the next decade? How does one craft a comprehensive energy policy in a world where where energy is becoming an increasingly scarce resource? And how does one counterbalance the national and economic security concerns of a nation like China against the population increasing in wealth by the day and demanding more of the things that go along with a, a rising standard of living? And then I pose the question, are resource wars coming? And are we caught in a feedback loop as it relates to energy akin to the one that uh, the economist that I read had identified with respect to the credit bubble or the, the credit crisis? So what's what's the point here? The point is is that you know China, um, for all of the the uh, wonderful things that it has going on, uh, is just as susceptible to the uh, macroeconomic factors that the rest of the world is struggling with. So after that talk, I apparently succeeded in, in uh, scaring the bejesus out of people, and uh, they asked me to come back and do it again in, in Hanoi. Uh, later in June, where I was sandwiched between, you know, um, folks from Penwell on the one hot side and Chevron on the other. And, uh, you know, just to sort of suggest that all the predictions that I, I try to make don't necessarily come true, what uh, what I suggested was that there would not be demand destruction for uh, oil at a dollar or $140 a barrel, uh, even though the Chevron guys were, were insistent that that would be the case. Thankfully, I'm wrong, and oil yesterday, I think, closed at somewhere, you know, short of $90 a barrel. Um, but to be pragmatic, well, so, so coming back to China, the, when you look at sort of the policy implications of, of what's going on in China, you realize that there is – the Chinese government is probably best described, to my mind, as pragmatist. So if we go back to the 2006 M&A regs and say, yes, it's nice to have, you know, well-known brands where there has to be some sort of clearinghouse and, and make sure that they're, you know, not just being bought up by foreigners, what I saw in that situation was where China is, was looking at what was coming down the pike in terms of insulating itself from what I, I have to believe the Chinese government saw with respect to what was likely to happen in the U.S. economy. So, for example, companies that were going to offshore themselves so that they'd be able to track foreign money and perhaps go list abroad, uh, list on a NASDAQ or NYSE or some other foreign exchange, if you're a policymaker in China and you're looking at that and you think, the dollar is only going to get cheaper, it's likely to make Chinese companies cheaper, and why would we want to have that? And so, to me, one of the policy implications behind that was to, to begin the insulation process of guarding um, Chinese companies from being cheaply acquired by foreign competitors. Um, well, another uh, law that's come into effect recently has to do with tax implications uh, for Hong Kong being a, a tax haven jurisdiction potentially for Chinese companies. So l let me just sort of cut to the chase here. What, what I think, what I see happening is, is that 
you know, the if you look at the reason why China has has managed to stockpile 1.8 trillion dollars in foreign in foreign reserves, why China has um, you know sort of begun to insulate its capital markets from outside influence, even though we, you know the amount of FDI um, has has been fairly steady over the last couple of years. It's the way the FDI comes into the country. And so, you know, whereas in if you wanted to do business in China, in, for, for example, in the early 90s or the mid-90s, you were generally stuck with a, a joint venture arrangement um, where you'd have to take on a Chinese partner, um, and, and, and that created a lot of sort of the uncertainties about doing business in China. Then along came the WUFI structure, and all of these are discussed in your book, where you could actually have a wholly foreign-owned enterprise where you didn't need a JV partner, and that could be your operating entity. Well, I think that, you know, in my opinion, sort of the WUFI structure is being undermined by some of these um, laws that are actually forcing the JV structure to come back into vogue. Um, the $1.8 trillion, um, I, I definitely see, you know, even if we, if we talk about energy and the, you know, in, in the materials that I passed out um, or that Bob handed out, have a uh, an energy a summary of their most recent energy law uh, pronouncements in it, and if you read that, um, it's it's so comprehensive that it actually didn't get through the state council. But what China has specifically identified energy um, as a strategic uh, resource. Now, that doesn't necessarily seem odd, but I would su- submit to you that that 1.8 trillion, even in spite of the um, demand destruction that's going on with the, with the current pricing of oil, a lot of that is going to be ultimately converted into oil stockpiles or oil resources. Um, additionally, and this is where the doom and the gloom comes in, um, you know, the $1.8 trillion is likely to find its way into gold. Um, China currently has the ninth largest reserve, gold reserves, uh, which is less than 2% of their foreign reserves, but they're buying like crazy. So where does that lead? Um, it leads to questions. Does China eventually intend to have a gold-backed currency? If you look at what's going on in the market today, um, you will see that most countries are up, up, you know, uncomfortable at, at best with what's happening in the currency markets. We are now at the sort of the official end of the Bretton Woods scheme that was put into place after World War II, uh, which the United States subsequently reneged on in the early 1970s by not allowing our, our currency to be converted to gold. Um, so to my mind, I think that there is there are some pragmatists in in the Chinese government that are looking to ultimately have either the yuan or the, the anachronistic uh, Hong Kong dollar ultimately backed by gold. And, um, and, and from the U.S. perspective, one has to wonder what that ultimately might mean for the dollar. The, it's no secret that the, the bailouts or however you want to term them, rescue plans, whether it be Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or what have you, uh, directly benefited the Chinese government because uh, the Chinese government is the largest creditor of the United States. And so, um, you know, you can see or feel sort of the, the, the hand uh, pulling some amount of strings behind the scene as it relates to uh, currency markets, Forex, um, T-bills, treasuries, and all of those other sorts of things. So um, 
the, the final point in talking about China in terms of the just where it's going, um, I don't think that China is going to be unscathed by the, the, the coming downturn. And in fact, if you look at uh, what's going on with um, the, the shipping rates, it, which is there are a lot of shipping and logistics folks here, and uh, some people know that in one of my prior lives I worked for Greyhound and doing Package Express and all those other sorts of things. So uh, shipping tends to be a fairly uh, good leading indicator of where um, commerce is going. So it used to be the old standing joke was, you know, the Chinese shipped all of the products to the U.S. and the containers sat there until, you know, they had to all deadhead back to China empty. Well, now the iron ore cars coming from Brazil and Latin America and a variety of other places are not being filled coming back to China. Um, China, like the rest of the world, is experiencing both inflation and deflation at the same time. So the property markets are, are definitely deflating. We just moved into our offices into the Shanghai World Financial Center, which is, I think, currently one of the tallest buildings in the world. Um, but that building is, is more than half empty, as are a lot of the buildings in Pudong. And it's, uh, I don't know if folks know Russian history or the, the notion of a Potemkin village or something. Um, it, it, it has a lot of that feel to it in terms of walking into office complexes that are not particularly full and are not particularly vibrant, even though the economy is still growing in excess of 10%. Um, some of that has to do with an intentional in, um, deflation of a property bubble. Last year, um, in June, I, I closed a deal for China Central Properties, which was a $650 million AIM listing of a spin-out of uh, a Hong Kong conglomerate. And the, the focus of that fund was to buy distressed assets in China. Well, as soon as, soon as the fund closed, um, and, and certainly they weren't looking at our deal as, as sort of any impetus behind the new laws, but sort of curbing or cooling the market. As soon as that deal closed, new austerity measures were put into place that actually made it very difficult for foreign investors to come in um, and buy real estate. And buying and putting a real estate woofy or getting approval for a real estate woofy in China has become next to impossible. So, <coughs> and, and um, just sort of by way of background, in China, nothing really ever sort of gets denied or, or disapproved. It just doesn't get approved. Right? It's not like the SEC where you file a registration statement and you say 30 days later if they haven't commented on it, it goes effective. No. If you file something with MOFCOM and they don't say anything about it, that means that it hasn't been approved. And so while folks will do a lot of deals based on sort of not having been disapproved, there's still that inherent risk out there that uh, sometime they might come back to you and uh, and say, you know, your deal should be unwound because you didn't get MOFCOM approval for it. So I'm, I'm actually going to stop right there because I know I've jumped around and I've covered a lot of things. It's, uh, again, I, the, the, the time, this, this is not the talk I intended to give, but the, the times that we live in and that we're living through are, are just so incredibly fascinating and so incredibly interesting that just talking about the law um, in a vacuum doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense unless we sort of layer some, some real... Um, practical implications on top of that. So I, what I'd love to do is sort of just see if we can make this a little bit more interactive and, and, and answer questions um, by um, whether they relate to um, the, the specific laws or, or what I see going on in China. And, I, and I'm stealing his thunder because I know he's got the microphone and, and uh, 
Uh, with all of those uh, reserves that they have, is there any chance that the Chinese government, uh, the um, sovereign wealth fund, so to speak, would come back to the United States and be an opportunity player in our financial crisis? Um, well, we hope so, to some degree, right? Um, actually, that was you know, one of the motivations for, for my moving to China and what I told my wife in this doom and gloom spiel was, you know, if the whole situation is going to be, um, I mean, if the whole world is going to be scathed, at least, you know, relatively speaking, you'd like to be where the money is. Um, so, yes, we, we do believe that there is likely to be a wave of, of outbound M&A, and indeed it's, it's already started um, to some degree. So what I see now is my U.S. clients, where it used to be you had it, you know, the, the, technolo- the U.S. money came in, um, perhaps even with an infusion of technology, and you leveraged off the Chinese skilled labor, uh, or the Chinese cheaper labor, rather. Uh, now I'm, I'm doing a deal with a Seattle-based client, um, power, power-related client, um, photovoltaic um, cells, and they're actually you know, licensing the technology into China, but it's going to be China Power that funds the build-out of a plant in China, and one in uh, Portland. So we, the, the money is, is coming back, and, and, it, and it has to. Um, last year, it, last fall, or last spring, rather, I gave a talk sandwiched in between two of my partners, and, um, and my piece of that was called Follow the Money, where I sort of assumed the, uh, the, the guise of deep throat. And, and, you know, wanted to know where that $1.8 trillion is going to go. I think a lot of it will come back to the U.S. because, you know, it's obviously denominated in dollars. But I think there's going to be a lot more opportunistic purchases around the world that are already happening. Uh, for example, in Africa, in Australia, in New Zealand, um, as it relates to, you know, China's acquisition of, you know, strategic energy resources, natural resources, and, and the like. You mentioned in the course of your talk, um, uh, the, the you mentioned gold, possibly China backing its currency with gold, and and the dollar right now seems almost counterintuitively to be going up. Mostly, uh, do you see a doomsday scenario? Oh, and also there was a rumor about two weeks ago that China might not continue to buy our T bills because they're. I think that 1.8 billion, a trillion that you mentioned, uh, a lot of that is our paper. Mm-hmm. So, is any of this in your doomsday scenario? And what what kind of uh, future do you see for the dollar and for gold? Well, the you know what's happening. Yeah, I mean we are in in, in the midst of a a dollar bull run, but that a lot of that is. One, U.S. money actually coming back into the U.S., so not foreign money coming. It's also the lack of liquidity uh, on a global scale where, um, the, you know, the Fed is having to sell or is selling dollars um, abroad. I mean, there's actually, um, you know, central banks are buying dollars um, so that they can, you know, infuse them into into the international banking system. But the, the long-term implications for the dollar are, are just not good. The, the fundamentals um, haven't changed since, you know, the the last ten years, which is the seven hundred billion dollar um, plus trade deficit, um, nine plus trillion dollars of national debt, 
um, and I know my PwC um, friends are back there, and they would tell you that, yeah, but that's not even GAP because if we had to accrue for you know Social Security and Medicare, that number would approach you know sixty trillion. Um, <laughs> and the fact that we just nationalized Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac added you know five trillion to that number, so it's it's tough to see how those are long term anything but long term dollar bearish. What what's also happening is a collective race to the bottom for all the fiat currencies in the world, um, because like China, um, uh, exporting countries in particular have decided, you know, it makes sense to keep their currencies weaker uh, in terms of propping up exports. So what you've seen in southern China, for example, um, there's a gentleman here who lives in, in Shenzhen. Um, who can attest to this, I'm sure, which is a lot of the sort of the low-end manufacturing companies or um, you know, sort of the low-end labor has been driven out of business already. A lot of those plants are closing in China. Two things behind that. One is <clears throat> the appreciation in the RMP. The other is a concerted effort by the Chinese government to sort of upstream or upscale um, the type of industry, uh, particularly manufacturing, that goes on in China. So it's, it's, you know, getting away from sort of the Wenzhou model of, you know, we've got, we make all the buttons in the world, or we make all of the shoes in the world, or we make all of these other sorts of things. Uh, you're going to see, you know, more pharma, uh, big pharmas there um, in spades. You're going to see a lot more um, sort of high-end technology. On the legal side, what you're going to see is a, a more concerted effort to back intellectual property rights. Um, surprise, surprise. And so, you know, that which has always been a knock against China, which is, you know, you can't protect your intellectual property there. But now, since a lot of that intellectual property is actually being um, is is actually being derived from China. Um, you're seeing, you know, uh, a more a greater emphasis on patent schemes and intellectual property protection. Jim, you just mentioned the fact that, that manufacturing costs in China is increasing, and that the Chinese policy is now orientating towards upgrading the technology and the manufacturing base. So the next country that's lined up behind China is right next door in Vietnam. And you were just there a couple of weeks ago. You, would you like to make uh, a statement or remark about business opportunities in Vietnam? <coughs> um, you know, I've, I've actually not spent enough time to, to sort of really appreciate um, the business environment of Vietnam, um, although I, you know, a lot of companies are, are looking at Vietnam. Um, you know, the, the, the conversation that we had earlier had to do with the fact that when I was there, I bought, um, you know, Vietnamese dong, and uh, it, when I went to sell it back inside the country, I couldn't find a buyer for it. Um, it was the first place I'd been in a long time that, uh, you know, dollar, folks still, merchants still wanted dollars. Um, you know, I think that there's going to be a lot of, I mean, as it relates to sort of labor arbitrage, um, there are a lot of countries out there, uh, whether that be Vietnam um, or the one that's perhaps most often overlooked, to much to my surprise, um, the Philippines, um, potentially, because, you know, they've got, they've got some of the educational infrastructure. Um, as it relates to U.S. companies, um, the number of English speakers there is, is very high. But, you know, Vietnam has, has, you know, to my understanding, positioned itself as 
as the next China. But it remains to be seen, you know, how much of that, when, when things really start to sink or to the extent that they actually do start to sink, uh, whether China is going to want to try to bring some of that back. Remember, we've got a 1.3 billion plus people that have to have jobs, or else that uh, you know the the idea of social unrest is is a real notion. And indeed, you know, lots and lots of protests go on in China that you know we never hear about in this country. And by the same token, things happen here that that they never hear about. Yes, sir. The role of the PLA in commerce. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, the role of the PLA in commerce is somewhat unique in the world, I think. Uh, and also competition between state-owned enterprises um, is, is very intense. Um, how do you look at that as far as foreigners dealing in a rather closed-in proposition between those entities? Between SOEs? SOEs and then also uh, industries and activities that the PLA is actually running? Um, you know, I don't necessarily have a lot of experience with the PLA uh, per se. SOEs definitely, um, because you bump up against them, you know, and I forget what the number is. Um, I think China's down to, you know, 160, and I'm throwing out numbers I, from a stat I read a long time ago, 160 plus. Um, large SOEs left, and the idea is to cut that in half over the next, you know, two to three years, and to continue to to privatize um, those companies. Um, you know, where where that impacts what I do on a day to day basis is when, anytime you're dealing with either um, a private equity shop that wants to make an investment to the extent that they're state ownership, or you know, you want to buy out um, a state ownership, then you you end up with a process, right? Um, you're either um, and basically, it's an auction process where you go to one of the um, either the Beijing Exchange or the Shanghai Exchange, and you file your documents, and and, and it has to go through kind of a quasi-public auction. But you know, we can talk about that. And in fact, there's a lot of uh, materials or slides in the materials that uh, we handed out as it relates to um, buying into state-owned enterprises. But you know, we um, our firm last year did uh, the IPO for China Railways, which is one of the sort of the bigger um, one of the bigger state-owned enterprises that that has been privatized. The you know there is a concerted effort to to move um, <clears throat> to add efficiency to those state-owned enterprises, and the primary way of doing that is to um, is to privatize them. And, you know, so that they can drive the bottom line and not, you know, the, the one thing that always strikes you about China is you go into a lot of places and there's just people standing there um, doing not a whole lot of things, whether it be a restaurant or it be a hotel or it be any one of a number of things. And part of that, again, going back to policy is, you know, if there's anybody, you know, any company doing business has to commit to a certain amount of jobs and it doesn't matter whether the people are actually working or not. Um, you know, but at the same time, the government you know, has to keep people employed, but at the same time doesn't want those inefficiencies. So I'm not sure how that plays out. But sorry, I can't answer your question on the PLA. Jeff, uh, the political situa situation in China, uh, in addition to Tibet, they've got a mo sizable Muslim minority, you know, in the western provinces. Uh, that, I understand, does create some instability in China. Uh, 
Now, we mentioned the Philippines. The Philippines got the same problem, and so does Thailand. Mm. I think Vietnam is one of the few countries of any size that does not have, you know, any Muslim population mm. to speak of. Uh, how does that situation affect China? Well, <clears throat> yeah, and just sort of for everyone's general edification, there's some, there's over 50 ethnic minorities in, in China. Um, so it's, it's not a completely homogenous um, population. Um, as it relates to the Muslim population, and, and I hate to sort of link these two because um, that's kind of what we do here <laughs> in our press, but the, you know, where that comes up, uh, where you see it the most is, is issues of, of, of unrest. Um, you know, you don't, in a, in a sort of a controlled state, you, you have the idea that there's not a lot of, you know, terrorism or, or, or those kinds of things that go on. When, in fact, you know, um, prior to the Olympics, there were a lot of, of demonstrations. There were bus bombings and car bombings that were, were getting notoriety. And, in fact, that was one of the reasons why um, it became so difficult for folks to get visas um, China, which um, during the Olympic time, because the government was of the opinion that we would rather have, you know, we'd rather have a very nice, smooth Olympics um, that didn't necessarily wasn't necessarily that well attended, than have one where everybody got to come, but we have some problems, and that that's kind of the general mindset in China. But as it relates to, to Vietnam. Um, you know, I think that that ultimately will help um, in terms of you know they're they're ha they're having a homogenous um, uh, a population at least from a, a, a you know religious or ethnic standpoint. I think we have time for one more question. Anyone else? One more, right uh, there. Let's take a left turn. India. Uh, I, I don't know how long it's been. Demographers have said that India will surpass Chinese population and. 30 years, let's say, and I project that when that happens, there's no turning back because Indian growth rate is so much higher. How do the Chinese see India as a competitor or threat? You know, I don't, I don't get the sense, and this is purely anecdotal, um, you know, I don't get the sense that, that China views India necessarily as, as that much of a threat at all at this point. Um, <clears throat> You know, while they're both still command economies, China has moved uh, considerably further down the path to sort of a more market-driven economy than has India. Um, and, you know, you can argue the demographics um, as to what that ultimately means. You know, there are folks that say here, we peaked out because, you know, once we hit the baby boomers demographically, you know, your, your, your economy is, is, you know, going to tap out at some point. Um, you know, I, I, I honestly don't know what that means with respect to India. Um, I can say that I don't get a, a lot of the big sense that, uh, that China is too particularly concerned about India from either an economic, well, from an economic standpoint, need, at least not at this point. Um, and just, you know, again, anecdotally, I have a, a longstanding client of mine who has been trying to get a company going in India for the last several years. And, you know, he, uh, he's had a tough go of it. And this guy tells me, he describes for me, and I, I want to write a book about this or something, but the 36 steps that it takes for him to get from his office to, or from his home to his office, and the things that transpire in those 36 steps, it's just the most amazing thing. Um, and while I'm certain a lot of that type of thing still transpires in China, 
um, it's it it can't possibly be as prevalent as it is in India. I, I just think India has so much further to go. One comment on that, by the way, uh, we would love to have an office in India. It's not permitted. You simply cannot have, uh, as an outside, as a firm with offices and lawyers elsewhere, you simply cannot have a legal office in India. Now, we have lawyers we work with, but you can't have an office there yet. In China, obviously, we can. Anyway, thanks, Jeff, uh, for coming. And, uh, For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.